now it's time for News with My Dad, a show where we talk about the news with my dad. In studio live, playing the role of my dad is, in fact, my dad, the star of our show, Joe Smith. Pop, how you doing? Well, I have I have to confess I have enjoyed sleeping in a couple of Monday and Thursday mornings. This is a show we talk about the news. We try to talk about the important stuff. Sometimes we talk about the unimportant stuff. When it's unimportant, we try to say so. We take turns. Dad typically takes the first turn. Pop, do you have a shout-out? I do. In fact, I have two shout-outs. Because of the long delay, I could have lots of shout-outs. But I want to shout-out first for our Oregon Ducks, who went into the Rose Bowl and honored us by beating Wisconsin and along with that, I want to shout out for Marcus Arroyo, the the offensive coordinator for the Ducks, who stuck with the Ducks through the Rose Bowl, even though he has been hired as the as a, the coach, the the boss of another team. He stuck with them and did a good job. And the other one I want to shout out for is Michelle Williams, who received the award last night for best actors actress in in uh, one of the the smaller venues but who gave a a short but very very beautiful comment on the importance of of assuring choice to women over their body and who said thank god that i am free to live my faith and you are free to live yours. Michelle Williams, that was really beautiful. My shout out goes to Nick Fish and to his family and to the many people who spent the uh, weekend uh, posting about their remembrances and their gratitudes for his service. Uh, Nick, who is a friend of the show, uh, we've had a chance to broadcast uh, some of that for people who wanted to hear his voice you had a chance to do that i think we will be doing some more tribute if there are pieces of nick's legacy that you would like to offer we would welcome those uh, it was uh, i haven't put all of my thoughts together on the subject but i do think that i will but some of it i still remember i mean heck i brought it up on air his phone call when he made the phone call he must have known that there was at least a chance that we weren't gonna have a lot of times to talk more. And I was just at the Winco, and he just called to say that, uh, say hello, and I figured he wanted to ask something or come on the air or something, but he just wanted to say hello, and that uh, he, uh, one of his staffers had told him how much they, he liked, uh, or they liked, he didn't say the gender of the person, but how much they liked the, uh, the show, because they liked you so much, Pop. And he and I talked about the privilege that I had. You know, he had lost his dad, his dad, a member of Congress, uh, and and talked about the privilege that, that I had to be able to work with you and do this with you. Uh, and, uh, and I am really grateful for the last chance to, that last chance to talk to him. And it did occur to me, by the way, that it might be. Uh, when, he, uh, when he made his announcement that he wasn't, that he was going to step down, or excuse me, that he was going to, before he made the announcement he was going to step down, but he made the announcement that he was not, uh, that he was going to take a leave. Uh, I started receiving texts uh, giving me reason to believe that he was not going to come back to office. Uh, and, you know, who knows, speculation, you know, I get texts on any number of subjects. Uh, but I, uh, uh, 
and I remember even when you and I were talking about you and I went to, went to dinner uh, this weekend uh, this weekend at the Old Country Kitchen and had steaks uh, and talked about it and uh, and it, in fact it was my memory that he had uh, he had announced uh, some you know a couple weeks ago that he wasn't that he was going to be stepping down and you re- you corrected me said no he actually just publicly announced that in the last couple of days but it still occurred to me when I spoke to him that I might not be talking to him much more times. Uh, and so I dwelled on it a little more than I might have otherwise. Uh, but he was he was a friend of the show, he was a friend of the city, someone who valued public service, who lionized public service, who did not shy away from uh, the moniker politician. Uh, and and I think there are a couple of leadership lessons, probably a lot of them, but, uh, and, and again, this isn't sort of my full-throated last word on the subject, subject. And if I can get buy-in from the morning team, I'd even like, to do, like us to do at the station a, a tribute to the dude. Uh, and and compile not only some of our various conversations with him, but also uh, remembrances from listeners, and uh, and to help be part of the uh, cacophony, part of the uh, chorus, maybe better, of gratitude for someone who committed their life to public service, who knew that their health was failing and decided to leave it all in the field and do what he loved and do what he cared about and continue to serve until the very very end. There was no indication that that that, uh, that he, at any point, was unable to do his job. The moment it, he was worried he wasn't going to be able to do his job, he took leave. Uh, and anyway, it's it's a painful moment for the city. And appreciate all the folks. We did get a text in, uh, saying somebody saying thank you for for airing the interview. And yeah, we're we're privileged to, uh, and I really want to say thanks to Joey and folks for putting that together. Uh, so that we we could air that this morning, we hope to hope to do more. And for those of you who do not understand exactly what Jefferson was referring to, the quite some time ago, Jefferson did a wonderful interview with Nick Fish, and that interview was run completely just before we began came on live this morning. So if you go to xray.fm and and go to the archives and just grab this morning show, X-ray in the morning, but back up from 7:30 to seven o'clock. You can listen to that interview, and it, it, it is a it is really a wonderful thing to do. And while we're talking about people passing, there's some other people who have passed in the last few days that I want to acknowledge. Edna Robertson, the the mother of the black community, has passed away. She is going to be missed. Rabbi Joshua Stamfer, one of the one of the real leaders of the progressive Jewish community in Portland passed away, age 97. John Lewis, David Stern of the NBA is gone, and John Lewis, John Lewis is going to be gone. He's he's fighting stage four pancreatic cancer. John Lewis, the the lion of civil rights, in uh, going back to when he he went to jail and got beat up and and then went on to Congress and became a, one of the real leaders in Congress. Uh, I was privileged I was privileged to take John Lewis to the airport once and got to visit with him and uh, he we feel for him but with stage 4 pancreatic cancer having lost my brother to that disease in just the last month uh, it's going to be sad to see him go. Well, Dad, where do you want to start? I guess we already sort of did start, and Joey reminded me that in the in some of that interview that you heard was actually the one, not the the most recent one, but one that was 
uh, maybe synchronously, uh, maybe coincidentally, maybe spookily, uh, almost precisely a year prior to, almost to the day, it was January 3rd, uh, 2018, excuse me, 2019, 2019, uh, when uh, it was one of our interviews uh, with the with the now deceased commissioner. Dad, you want to start with the... I think we should start with Iran. All right. Well, then I want to say this before you do, because here is my... Lest, lest we fall into the same trap that every media organization has fallen into, which is not because they're bad at their jobs. It's because they're doing their jobs, and the scope of their job is something that can be hacked, that can be manipulated. Now, the scope of their job is to cover the new news. That's the word, what the heck the word means. And meanwhile, falling into the uh, preference of the sitting President of the United States, who when he made this choice, was clearly wanting to, as he likes to do, garner attention and point attention towards where he would rather attention be and away from where he doesn't want it to be. And the thing that I want to say is that the impeached president should be convicted of a pattern of corruption, abuse of power, and obstruction of justice. This is my view, not the view of any organization. And the fact that he would initiate war to change the subject on that shows the dire danger of keeping him in office. And taking attention away from the corruption of this president uh, and each time, remember, when it's usually the president just saying something awful. But in this case, he assassinated a general, did something that the United States of America hasn't done since the Second World War, which is, which is assassinate a, uh, a uh, major military figure of a sovereign nation, but 1943. That was, but, that, but that was during a time when we were in a Actually war that war. had been constitutionally authorized by Congress, and it was an active war, and you, it really wasn't an assassination. It was a t targeted getting rid of a significant enemy that was leading the uh, in that war, whereas this one, there is no... De declaration of war. There is no constitutional authorization. But the other thing that nobody's talked about, who were the other men, and I assume they were all men, who were killed when those two vehicles were destroyed? Were they fathers? Were they husbands? Were they sons of caring parents? Why do, do we decide that we can assassinate them that we, we without any due process whatsoever and under no color of congressional authority and it takes me back to the feeling that I had years ago when when 9/11 happened that the huge mistake that we made when 9/11 happened was to treat it as a war rather than to treat it as a crime so we didn't call them, we didn't say we're going to take a war on terror. We are going to prosecute these folks as criminals, as murderers. And if, Sole how do you pronounce his name? I'm not, so Soleimani, if Soleimani is guilty of the things that they say, why didn't we indict him months ago and then look for an opportunity to arrest him and this might have been the great opportunity to arrest him and try him we, we you know it just it's sad 
the and the reason I opened the way that I did is what I usually say and what I've been saying now for heck sheesh it's been three years almost uh, that when uh, Donald Trump it's usually when he just says something as opposed to does something but when he but it includes it include it included his uh, his firing of rockets at a what is a, a Syrian vessel uh, a couple years back that scan the room take a breath and see what else is going on particularly and I, I usually when I say that it's just because he said something extreme something that makes us clutch our collective pearls take a breath scan the room see what else is going on and same thing here whenever this president does something that most of the pundit class cannot understand they spend so much of their time trying to understand it spending the attention of america trying to make sense of it when it is in fact that discussion that is the objective of the president it is not the there, there is not an objective of the act as much as treating the presidents of the united states like a highly rated tv show and wanting to be the hero of that tv show and attack villains in that tv show that in this instance if the only thing we do is immediately change the subject and start talking about our relationship with Iran, whether or not Suleimani was a bad guy, he obviously was. Uh, first, we've got to say, listen, this is an impeached president who is uh, right now having the full backing of the Republican apparatus who is engaged in, not, and this, not based on any undisclosed conduct, but on fully disclosed conduct, a pattern of corruption, obstruction of justice and that this president would in, would send us to the brink of war is only reinforces only reinforces the importance of talking about that corruption but we should say that Nancy Pelosi has now uh, announced a war powers vote and a letter Sunday the house will this week introduce and vote on a war powers resolution to limit president Trump's military actions in Iran Pelosi announced the action as Trump doubled down on his threat to target 52 Iranian states and threatened Iraq with sanctions. Those threats came <laughs> and, after. And, and we, we should mention that those sites apparently included, and maybe were principally, irreplaceable cultural sites that going back with history, going back hundreds, even thousands of years, clearly a war crime. Uh, in her letter, Pelosi thanked her colleagues for their patriotic leadership. Uh, the resolution will be led by freshman Michigan Representative Alyssa Slotkin, a former CIA and Defense Department analyst specializing in Shia militias. Dad, I don't know if you saw Slotkin's Twitter thread where she basically made the case and, and laid it out in what, what felt like a pretty unbiased uh, accounting that, listen, Suleimani has been, uh, has been engaged in uh, backroom dealing with uh, American enemies uh, for and remember, I mean, we've been we have been in intermittent conflict with Iran ever since. It, and and you can make a strong case that we drew first blood in 1953. Ev- you know, for now now nearly 70 years. Uh, but the Bush administration and the Obama administration had both made the decision that a that war with Iran up, up front. Remember, remember, John McCain had said, "Bomb, bomb, bomb, bomb Iran." 
that military conflict, open military conflict with Iran was a bad idea, that it could galvanize uh, Muslim opposition to the West and the United States, that it could breed more terrorists, that it could lead to significant uh, risk to American lives and American treasure, and that both the Bush administration and Bob administration had also ruled out, had been presented the option. And the new way the New York Times put it, and now the reporting says, oh, wait, these kind of options are put out by the Pentagon. They usually include like one extreme one, just so you pick the one in the middle. It's like people picking caskets. You know, when you go in a funeral and, you're, and you pick up and you, they, you shop around for caskets, apparently the reason for the most expensive casket and the least expensive casket is so you pick one of the ones in the middle. Nobody buys, very few people buy just the cheapest wooden box and very few people buy the one that's made out of gold but it's to get you to you know buy the one in the middle and that the pentagon has been doing a similar thing uh, and usually the president said well no i'm not gonna do that i'm not gonna do this one that you think is wacky well in this case uh, the president first didn't and then watched some fox news uh watched uh, protests in iran and then decided oh wait a minute now is my chance uh and uh, and authorize an extreme act. Now, what do you see as some of the repercussions of this? Well, the, the immediate one re- immediate repercussion is that Iran has announced they are completely repudiating the nuclear deal, that they are going to proceed forthwith and in haste to, to develop the technology needed to have the big bomb. And that takes us, that takes us back to where we were Ten years ago, with the threat that Iran would do that, and Israel then would insist on going to war with Iran, and Iran having one of the bigger armies and better equipped armies in the world would not be an easy thing. The uh, DDT administration has told every all of the American citizens in Iraq to get out of Iraq. That's wonderful. The uh, it goes on from there. If you, uh, I, I just, I, I am just reminded of what happened. What was it, the fourteenth of August in nineteen fourteen when the Archduke of was assassinated, and that that suddenly led to the worst war that the world had perhaps ever seen up till that time. Assassinating, Where does it stop? assassinating sovereign generals is something that is, again, not. And we've had a lot of con- let's include the Cold War. We've had a lot of conflicts since 1943, but not since 1943 has the United States targeted an individual military leader, high-ranking general of another uh, sovereign nation, and killed them. And there's multiple reasons. One, because the funeral for that fallen leader, he then becomes a martyr. He then becomes somebody that people parade in the streets. And, oh, by the way, they are now parading the streets in Iran. They are now talking about the white devil and the Western devil shouting in the United death, States. Shouting death to the great Satan, and that's us. And spawning yet another generation of Iranians, who and uh, Iranian children who become Iranian adults, who will make it significantly more likely that we will continue to be in an ongoing conflict with Iran. Uh, also, it means that your enemies and frenemies can look around and say, wait a minute, the United States, they're real wacky. 
They're doing some crazy stuff. This is a pretty extreme act. And so folks like, and you mentioned it, the Iraqi parliament did call on the government to expel United States troops, passed a resolution on Sunday calling on that expulsion in response to the killing of Soleimani. And DDT has said, well, we're not going to leave until you pay us for our base. As if the base was something that was for the benefit of Iraq. The legal basis for the U.S. presence in Iraq is that it comes at Iraq's invitation. Uh, This vote does not formally revoke that invitation, but it is a step towards that path. U.S. exit could ultimately want to be one of the most uh, important consequences of Soleimani's killing. It would significantly hamper, uh, according according to military experts, the fight against ISIS, achieve a major Iranian objective, uh, the Iraqi prime minister said that Iraq cannot accept the political assassination on its soil. He called the attack a grave violation of Iraqi sovereignty. Uh, the other, uh, I'll, I'll give you another, Dad, uh, beneficiary of this act, uh, uh, Northrop Grumman. Uh, their stock jumped <laughs> 5.4%. Uh, Aerovironment uh, advanced 6.9%. They make small, short-range reconnaissance drones that U.S. soldiers use. Uh, Lockheed Martin uh, jumped 3.6%. Uh, the, they make the F-35 fighter jet. Uh, Raytheon, who makes missile and radar technologies, they rose 1.5%. So some people win in this deal. Yes, the military-industrial complex. I do need to say one more thing. When you see and look, when you try to look at the big board, the big picture of global strategy. A consolidated Muslim Middle East, united against the West, and specifically united against the United States. This has been the big dream of anti-United States forces for decades now. It is the stated dream of ISIS. It was the stated dream of Saddam Hussein. It is the stated dream of the folks who have done and will do harm to the United States. And it is the unstated but clearly one of the goals of Russia. We got a we got a text uh, in it's a, via Howard Dean. Nice job, Trump and Pompeo Dimwitz. You've completed the neocon move to have Iraq become a satellite of Iran. You have to be the dumbest people ever to run the U.S. government. You can add that to being the most corrupt to get these guys out of here. Uh, the idea of a, an Iraq plus Iran united not because they are moving into the 21st century awareness of uh, a, a kind of social fairness, not because or and democracy, but because they are united against the United States is an absolutely horrible outcome for almost anything right or left that you care about. And seeing this in the big picture is one of the things we're supposed to do since we have more than just a couple minutes. And by the way, this is a reminder. It's a thank you for people who gave at the end of the year. We really appreciate it. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a founder of a local newspaper who said, uh, who reminded me that the average local news broadcast covers two minutes a night of real news. I thought it was four three or four, but it's average two. And he said, he said, Jeff, take your, you, you take your stopwatch out and actually time it. If you take out, if you take out like a Twinkie story and you take out uh, crime, sports, uh, weather, traffic, and commercials, maybe one story a night that's on something of consequence to democracy and the chance to have a little bit more uh, air. It's why we have a chance, for instance, to air, you know, Nick Fish's words 
in full. But, Pop, you wanted to keep going with international. Your turn. Other international stuff. Cambridge Analytica. The documents that have been released by Brittany Kaiser, formerly of Cambridge Analytica, show that our failure to punish the folks at Cambridge Analytica for what they have done, they, they, they're out there on undoubtedly plotting to, to do it more, and, and it's really, really, really scary. Something that folks who are into cryptocurrencies, I hope you did not own Quadriga, because with the death of Gerald Cotton, his wife says she doesn't even know the passwords to get in there, so that's maybe just a, 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 a big hole. This is the bummer. If you lose your wallet when it's a regular wallet, right, you lose your credit cards, you can call them up and get your credit cards back, right? If you, you lose your bank card number, you can call somebody at the bank and get your bank card number back. The problem is if you lose your key code into your, into your cryptocurrency, it's yeah, just gone. And the whole right. point of it is you can never get it back. And I had never thought about until this moment you telling that story. I had missed that story that, uh, that if, if, if the head of the shop yeah. loses their key card, everybody's toast. Exactly. Oh, man. It's just toast. Tokyo Olympics coming this summer. There are one million tickets available to residents who have to apply in the lottery. 25 million residents have applied for those, which means that you have a 4% chance of getting to attend the Olympics on through the lottery tickets if you are a citizen of Japan. Wow. Khashoggi murders. Saudi Arabia has said, after a secret trial, that there have been five men sentenced to death, three to 25 years in prison, and three acquitted. But there was absolutely no attempt to connect the Khashoggi murder to the person who was almost unquestionably responsible for it, the present crown prince who is the de facto ruler. Libya. In Libya, General Hotari's army, which is fighting against the Tripoli government, which has the support of the international community, is hiring Sudanese mercenaries, and Turkey has agreed to send troops to help the government so Libya is going to be a, a, a battleground for a while. North Korea has announced that they are going that they are expanding their long-range missile plant and Kim Jong-un has said there is no deal with the United States until and unless we relieve the sanctions. So all of the hype that DDT got over that is Clearly, for not thus far, Maduro in Venezuela is taking steps to take over the legislature. His, his dictatorial powers are increasingly becoming absolute. Putin, in a speech on the 20th of December, which is said that Poland was partly responsible for World War II which has made some polls quite upset, and this might note that the 31st of December marked the 20th anniversary of Putin's ascension to power. 
while we're talking about Russia, Putin is bragging that they have successfully developed a hypersonic missile which can zigzag, making it perhaps impossible, certainly very difficult, to bring it down with an anti some anti-missile weapon. That's kind of scary. And in Japan, or no longer in Japan, Nissan's former chief, Carlos Gosen, a, a caper that you'd think was a story for a movie, who took a bullet train to get to an airport, got onto a chartered aircraft because of a false manifest, not using his own name, managed to escape to Lebanon, where as long as Lebanon allows him to stay, he probably will be able to avoid being tried for the crimes of which he is indicted in Japan. The word of the decade is the singular they, according to U.S. linguists. They announced they as their favorite word, or excuse me, their word of the decade, recognizing the growing use of third-person plural pronoun as a singular form to refer to people who identify gender as neither just merely binary. The American Dialect Society bestowed its Word of the Year honors on the practice of introducing oneself in correspondence or socially by the set of pronouns one prefers to be called by, declaring in an email, for example, pronouns colon she slash her. The awards were decided by 350 members of the society at their annual meeting of academics. The most popular pick of Word of the Year was My Pronouns, which the society said is a reflection of how the personal expression of gender identity has become an increasing part of the shared discourse. And they, it's a recognition of the reality, the reality of transgender fact that, it, that goes back thousands of years, which we have finally acknowledged that transgenders have the right to be treated just like other people, but what might be mentioned that we're not all the way there because the U.S. of A. pageant has told Anita Noel Green that she is not allowed to compete in the in the contest because she is a transgender, and also perhaps tangentially related to this whole issue, the United Methodist Church, which we've talked about the the battle going on in the United Methodist Church, is a schism. Has a schism is going to vote in May on whether or not to simply split, and the folks who, particularly led by the African delegates to the convention, want to continue to discriminate against people whose gender does not agree with their them. And, and those who agree with the Dallas congregation, which last week on the 29th of December had a service for reaffirming marriage vows at which LGBTs were welcome to reaffirm their marriage vows. I think you should throw people in there, Pop. We've talked about this before. I don't, you know, I, I, who am I to be the word police? But, but LGBT people. Rather, LGBT, LGBT, okay. you know what I'm saying. All right, I gotcha, like gotcha. Uh, a piece that a piece that is not important by itself, but I think is important symbolically. The Bullet Mustang is going up for sale, and for those who don't know what the Bullet Mustang in, in the movie Bullet, there was a chase, which is was about the best car chase that was ever done, and it was 
done in a Mustang. And it is expected that that car is going to bring $3 million at auction. Uh, that's not important, but what is that means that there are people out there who can throw $3 million into a car that, if it were not the bullet Mustang, same Mustang, same year, a few thousand dollars. It's the advertisement for the estate tax. Yeah. It's, you know, the, the thing that very often I think the media is missing is just reminding people when somebody's like, instead of the story being, wow, that's expensive, and the story's also like, oh, yeah, and that's why, like, progressive taxation is a good idea. Exactly. And while we're talking about... That's why we want a middle class. That's why we don't just want gaping wealth disparities. Okay. While we're talking about Mustangs, Ford, that is, is going to be producing an electric Mustang. The first run of that, even though not a single one has come off the assembly line yet, the first run is completely sold. Nancy Pelosi has not made a decision on sending the impeachment articles. The House of Representatives is returning to work tomorrow on Tuesday. We shouldn't be expecting an announcement by the Speaker to send the articles of impeachment to the Senate. The Senate remained at a stalemate on Friday over how to proceed with an impeachment trial as the chamber's leaders wrangled over whether White House aides could be called and would be called as witnesses. And the top Democrat appealed to a handful of Republicans who could help break that impasse. And after the two-week recess, there's still no clarity about when that impeachment trial might begin. One, one of the things that I think about, and people have not talked about much, but the potential role of the Chief Justice, because the Constitution says that the trial shall be presided over by the Chief Justice. It doesn't then go on to say what the powers of the presiding officer are, but generally the presiding officer of any body has the power to rule on the relevance of motions, on the relevance of evidence, on, the, on what is admissible, what is not admissible. And of course, then you bodies also are, are authorized to overrule the rulings of the presiding officer. But I just really wonder, what might he do? What John Roberts might do is one of the most important questions. Absolutely. Not only on this, but on so many questions in the United States right now, including whether millions of people are going to keep or lose their health care, including whether... I, I, I want to bring up the speech he just gave that he worried about the state of our democracy in his year-end report on the federal judiciary, an annual tradition that uh, sends Supreme Court reporters uh, to look at the document and then talk about it at New Year's Eve parties. Uh, and shout out to Vox, from whom I'm borrowing a bunch of this. Uh, the uh, He started with a preamble that said, we have come to take democracy for granted, Civic education has fallen by the wayside. My deep hope is that John Roberts is looking at the spawn of the movement that spawned him. He is, he is not, he is no one's moderate. He is no one's savior. I think very often a trap liberals can fall into is hoping that some conservative daddy is going to save them. He came out of the Federalist Society. Nonetheless... He's not an idiot. 
I am hope, and he has to actually call himself Chief Justice. And back in the day, when FDR was looking to expand the court, uh, it one justice switched his view, and that was the switch that saved the the switch in time that saved the nine that took away the uh, FDR's push for an expansion of the court because the court stopped uh, deeming the Constitution as something that would block any social welfare legislation that exists. This is the Lochner era. I've talked about it before. This is the uh, the big push that's happening in the right wing right now is trying to have another Lochner era, another era where the Trump card, I'm using that word in, on purpose, the Trump card in democracy is in fact the court's against social welfare legislation to use, for instance, freedom of speech as a reason why you can't regulate money in politics. Uh, use freedom of speech as why you can't regulate media oligarchies or, heck, any kind of oligarchy. The weaponization, essentially, of freedom of speech. Uh, but I just have this hope that John Rock, and I, I know that it's probably false hope, but I have this hope that he's looking at Donald Trump and saying, oh, wait a minute. I think actually we got to do something. And that like the justice of 100 years ago, they recognize, oh, you know, I, I'm i going to be in the history books. People aren't going to remember. Every, they might not remember Justice Blackman. I mean, the law students will. You're not going to remember every single justice, but you remember chief justices. And if this chief justice stands by Trump, he's got to know that that is the story of his life. If he takes health care away from millions of Americans, that is the story of his life. And I am hopeful that he becomes a moderated force. In the way that Earl Warren went from Republican to liberal, I don't have I don't have that kind of expectation or even hope, and even even in a small way. But, but we remember Earl Warren, we remember John Marshall, and we will remember Roberts one way or the other. But also remember that how John Roberts thinks about democracy includes him being the first or the fifth vote in a 5-4 vote, striking down much of the Voting Rights Act, that he did nothing to stop partisan gerrymandering. Uh, in McCutcheon versus the FEC, said government regulation may not target the general gratitude a candidate may feel toward those who support him or his allies, the political access such may afford him. Uh, one of the most famous opinions he has was an MNFIB, excuse me, versus Sibelius, which upheld the Affordable Care Act. We will see what happens with that. And, and it should be mentioned that the uh, bunch of House Democrats and a whole bunch of states have joined in filing a petition with the Supreme Court asking them to exercise their power to assume immediate jurisdiction over the appeal of the of rulings on the ACA, Obamacare, not because they are all that salubrious about how the Supreme Court will rule, but they want to get it out of the way. Could use a salubrious. The, uh, <laughs> and the question for the history books, the question for all of us, the question for millions of people who are going to, whose health care is at risk is... What, kind, what is John Roberts' definition of conservative? I don't think he's going to be Earl Warren. But what is his definition of conservative? Is his definition of conservative whatever is best for Republican power? Is his definition of conservative whatever is best for the wealthiest in society? 
is his definition of conservative whatever the Confederacy might have wanted in the wake of the Civil War and what uh, and what many wanted instead of Brown versus Board of Education? Is that his definition of conservative? Or is his definition of conservative what folks have said it was in the judiciary for some years, which is a constrained and confined role for the federal judiciary? And, and being very reluctant to overturn precedent unless there was an overwhelming recognition of the error of the ways. Illinois governor has cleared thousands of marijuana convictions. Governor J.B. Pritzker described the step as the first wave of thousands of such expungements made Illinois the 11th state to legalize marijuana for people 21 or older. When they crafted the policy, Illinois lawmakers said they wanted to repair some of the damage caused by law enforcement's efforts to combat the sale and use of the drug. And by the way, it's a Lincoln High School graduate who's his communications director, for what it's worth. Oh, is that right? Yeah. While she was a, while, she was a bus project volunteer back in the day. On on that on that uh, related subject, flavored vapes are out in February nationwide unless you're an adult that goes to a salon where you can smoke them through a, a connection to some big facility. But that's going. Something that I think is worth mentioning: Ticketmaster and Live Nations are proposing a merger. I'm afraid that that really I missed that. How did I miss that? And that's Ticketmaster and Live Nation. That's like moving to like a like a major music monopoly. Exactly. Oh, geez. Exactly. If that is allowed to go through, I just oh wow. But what are they black? Like like this administration doesn't think antitrust law exists. I mean, they 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 have such a narrow definition of where uh, of where there is actually restraint of trade. Yep. Something, a personal thing that made me aware of something. I went to Fred Meyer's to shop yesterday, and they had Idaho potatoes, big, beautiful Idaho potatoes, on sale for 69 cents a pound. So I bought a few potatoes, and actually, your, your brother fixed me a potato for dinner last night. But I couldn't help but noting that in the news over the weekend, that the price to farmers for their potatoes has had huge inflation. It went from $6 last summer up to $11 right now because of the shortage of potatoes. But that's per hundred. So $11 per hundred, 69 cents a pound is $69 per hundred. Somewhere between the farmer and me, this is somebody's a big markup. Making a lot of money. Well, somebody's got to put it in a truck. Somebody's got to wash it. <laughs> oh boy! You got and they got to advertise it to tell you where you can get the best price. Right. <laughs> well, Dad, uh, let, let's do. Wait, well, there one one more oh, nas- okay. one more national thing I've just got to mention that the California study of driving while black has revealed a huge disparity in Los Angeles, where the black population is nine percent. They are they are twenty eight percent of the traffic stops. San Francisco population five percent, twenty six percent of the traffic stops. San Diego six percent of the population, nineteen percent of the traffic stops. And the searches of black folks who are stopped, as opposed to searches of white folks who are stopped, the white folks have contraband more often than the blacks. Well, Dad, 
Let us do election news. Castro is out. Julian Castro is no longer a candidate for the presidency. And did you hear the announcement this morning that he has endorsed Elizabeth Warren for the presidency? No, I missed that. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. And that comes uh, right on the heels of news that uh, Sanders has surged in some early states as Warren has fallen back. The CBS News poll published on Sunday said that Sanders is starting the year in a three-way tie for first place in Iowa alongside Joe Biden and Mayor Pete Buttigieg, 23% each, and Elizabeth Warren down to 16. Uh, Klobuchar then down below that at 7, and nobody else uh, breaking 3%. Uh, Sanders also landed first place in New Hampshire with 27% of the vote. New Hampshire, of course, is close to Vermont. Uh, Biden in second, and then Warren in third, Buttigieg in fourth. I am, I am reminded while we're talking about the presidential race, that in 1960, John Fitzgerald Kennedy announced his candidacy for the presidency on the first day of January. So somebody might get in. A good, good candidate. You're saying you're saying Bloomberg has a chance, Bob. You're, oh, you're saying some candidate's well, not in the well, race yet, still well, could do it. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying it is it is absolutely absurd. We start earlier now. That we start the presidential campaign not the year previous, but two years previous to the actual election. Uh, Democrats have raised a ton of money uh, in, and raised a ton of money at the end of the year. Yang got $16 million bucks. Who's giving Yang $16 million? Holy cow. Yeah, he, you know what he says? I have, I have a suspicion on that one. I'd like to know where his money is coming from. Do you know? Because I'm just wondering if there aren't folks out there who are contributing to him in the off chance that he might be the nominee because they figured he'd be the easiest to beat. No, I think it's not as, my own view is not as nefarious of that as that. I do believe there is a huge market, and I think that uh, Bernie Sanders tapped into that market in the last election, uh, a huge market of people. It's an insufficient uh, market to win at this point in the movie. Uh, but tapping into it, there's power there. That there's there's major power in, or if not power, there's at least an audience and a base of support for something that feels not exactly like the doctrinaire left or the doctrinaire right. I think there is, and if you can, and I think Donald Trump in an odd way tapped into some of that. I think Bill Clinton in an odd way tapped into some of that, or maybe not that odd a way in what's become sort of a typical way. Barack Obama tapped into some of that, but there are certain candidates tap into it a lot. Bernie Sanders tapped into that uh, in, of course, a very, very different way, and it's not, and I didn't just say finding a space in between the left and the right. Uh, he does say not left or right but forward. I remember saying that and feeling you know. <laughs> Sometimes that, we've got to ask him Did he ever see the video? Did he ever yeah. watch one of the speeches? Yep. Yeah. Uh, and But there is a there is a recognition and I, I'm one of the people who thinks there ought to be a recognition that the idea that Coke and Pepsi uh, have, have, have everything figured out for the American populace is not is, is sort of an absurd view. That doesn't mean that I'm scared of uh, affiliating with a party. It doesn't make me think that uh, I, I can't be in a real politic world where I recognize that I'm going to either vote for Coke, Coke or Pepsi, but recognizing that we need to make sure that our binary system, our first-past-the-post election can control our politics but shouldn't control our brains is something that I think lots of people, uh, it resonates with a lot of people because it's true. The other, I'll give you a more tactical one, though, uh, not just philosophical, but a tactical one. Apparently, he 
taps some of his success to his fundraising surge to his appearance on Joe Rogan. And so the, the sort of broy force, w- one of the challenges right now is that the, the center of the Democratic Party isn't doing a lot to uh, the, the foundation forces. Like if you go to any like kind of lefty foundations, none of them are really trying to figure out how to talk to white dudes. Right. And even if you any of you say that, oh, well, there people aren't doing a lot of you're sort of proud of the problem. Right. You're like supporting patriarchy and whatever else. But there's still a lot of white dudes with dough. Right. There's still a lot of there's white dudes who vote. There's a lot of white dudes who live in the United States of America. And not all of them are, are not all of them are Trump Republicans. And they uh, and, and so I think and a lot of them listen to Joe Rogan, apparently. And so when Andrew Yang went on Joe Rogan, uh, apparently he says that's one of the one of the things that oh, gave him a boost. Interesting. Uh, I'll give you. I'll give you some more. The uh, where'd it go? Oh, did you have a little election news pop? I got a bunch. Well, go ahead. I was killing for time. Uh, no, millennials I- and Generation Z will make up thirty-seven percent of the twenty twenty electorate. That is a growing share. Boomers uh, are uh, are down to twenty-eight point five percent. The silent generation down to nine point five percent. Gen X twenty-four point six percent. So the if you take you know sort of the what we traditionally view as sort of the younger voter cohort, the younger voter cohort is bigger. Doesn't mean it's going to be more voters, but it does mean it's a large vote share. Also, in a Harris poll, and shout out to Sean Swagger, who helps out in preparing the information for the show, uh, women age 50 and older could decide the 2020 election. Elizabeth Warren might be dipping a little bit in the polls, but she's still raising a bunch of money, still has big support. And if there were a surge in feminist voting, if there's like, wait a minute, are we really sure that the top three should all be the white dudes? Are we sure about that, that Joe Rogan should decide the election? How many people were listening to Michelle Williams last night when she ended her remarks by saying, women, you got to get out and vote. We are the biggest voting block in the country. And if and if and that could be fuel that could uh, that could push Elizabeth Warren back up. Uh, one, one of the unfortunate things, of course, is that the women's vote is afflicted as so many other things are afflicted with crabs. With the crab philosophy, that sounds bad, Pop. I know, but it's but it's a fact. You don't mean that. You mean I don't know that you know what I mean by that sounds bad. <laughs> you think I? No, I don't. Okay, it's fine. We can move on. Okay. Uh, you, you mean the story that uh, that your younger brother used to tell about a crab reaching up and pulling out another crab down exactly. and keeping from getting out of the pot? You mean sort of jealousy? Exactly. I, I'm not prepared to comment on that. I am prepared to say that all of us are part of a culture that is a afflicted by misogyny, uh, and and it, it is a challenge for everybody. Uh, but I'm not yet ready to, I'm not yet ready to count Elizabeth Warren out. I think they're, nor am I ready to count out Amy Klobuchar. Uh, I think it was New York Times just came out and said, oh, this is the candidate that can beat uh, beat Donald Trump. I don't think that sex and gender is the only issue in, in, in this race, of course, uh, but it is an important dynamic. Uh, Dad, here is, I think, one of the most interesting polls that I've seen in a while. And this is a 2024 poll, 2024, 2024 poll. It doesn't mean the poll was taken in 2024. Yes, and, and the Republicans like Ivanka and Jr. Yes. Holy cow. And here's the thing. <laughs> this is, And I had failed to connect these dots. That's why it's good to read things, because we don't figure everything out for ourselves all the time. 
that uh, I remember in negotiation class in law school, the very first exercise we had was called was an oil pricing game, okay, where you'd have essentially a series of uh, years. It was occurred over the course of a couple hours, where you would be pricing oil alongside your counterpart, and it was essentially a prisoner's dilemma game. Essentially, a game that you could either cooperate or defect. You could either try to do something that's a little nicer to your uh, your partner across the table or do something that tried to undercut your partner on the other side of the table. And at some point, it was the end of the round. And, and as in The Prisoner's Dilemma, the thing, the thing that gets you to uh, the game theoretic incentive that gets you to cooperate is the thought that you want to send a signal to your counterpart that they should cooperate the next time. Well, at some point, you're at the final month. At some point, you're Ricky Gervais, and it's your last time doing the Golden Globes, and you're not trying to be nice to anybody. That's part of his act, but he's also recognized he was in the last month, the last year, the last day, the last move in his oil pricing game, the last act in his uh, prisoner's dilemma transaction. That the uh, that this idea of tit for tat, at some point, there's going to be a last tat, and you don't have to worry about the tit. So... What uh, and and so when I've been thinking about Donald Trump, it's like why you know everybody why are they all sticking with him uh, if they there's and, and I think there's lots of reasons not just one reason but one reason I hadn't appreciated is that Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump Jr. are in fact that oil pricing game lasted eight months but in that last one there was still cooperation in that eighth month I wrote a paper about well maybe one of the reasons for the is an artificial game is you couldn't be absolutely sure there wasn't going to be a ninth month. One of the reasons in that tit-for-tat thing that you might still cooperate in that very last move is you're not sure there's not going to be another tat. There might be another tat. Now we know that Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka are significant tats. They are. There's a risk when they say, well, we'll cross the Trumps. We're like, oh, no, it's not just Donald Trump we have to contend with. And it's not just even Fox News and right-wing radio we have to contend with. It's that these candidates are candidates that we might have to run again against or whose endorsement we want. This is the power of the dynasty he started to build, a dynasty not based on merit, a dynasty based on absurdity, venality, and corruption and blackmail. But nonetheless, it's an important piece of political puzzle, I think. And, and would would they flip a coin to decide which one of them actually ran, or would they run against each other? Just run in different states. <laughs> Just run in different states. But they'd all have to go. They both have to go to Iowa. Oh, for president, I guess for president. Yeah, I, 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 for president. But they no, they they wouldn't run. Oh, that's a good question. But but who would poll, run in twenty twenty four? The Republicans put them up. Donald Jr. I think. Yeah, I think Donald Jr. would beat Ivanka in a Republican primary. Because because sure, Ivanka course, tries to have more friends, yeah, and 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 because Donald, and because Ivanka tries to have some friends in like that are liberals. Mis- misogyny is everywhere, but it is rampant in the present Republican Party. And Donald Trump, elect- excuse me, the Republican Party. Look at what I did there. That was an interesting Freudian slip. I just I just yeah the it may be an accurate one that the uh, Republican Party likes you know they elect trolls and Donald and Donald Trump Jr. good troll. Yeah. Well, I don't know, a good troll, yeah. effective troll. All right, Dad, that is. Are you ready? Election news. We'll be right back. When we come back, we have a special guest. Dad, you might want to talk about our guest just for a moment. Well, we just have a special guest who has done some wonderful things as a white pastor who wound up being associated with a mostly black church and who is recognizing 
what I personally believe is the real message that one finds in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, especially in the fifth, sixth, and seventh chapters of Matthew, and you're going to enjoy hearing from him. Parts I remember from the Bible, including loving thy neighbor, included turning the tables of the money changers, included turning the other cheek, many passages, many passages about helping the poor, curing the sick. Not so many passages about supporting big military, supporting big business. I do remember the challenge of a rich man getting to heaven being comparable to a camel fitting through the eye of a needle. Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove wrote Revolution of Values, trying to reclaim some of the teachings of the Christian church. He joins us now. Jonathan, thanks so much. Well, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. You talk about a personal journey. You identify a personal journey throughout the book, namely the religious right courting you as a white man. Tell us more about that. Well, I come from uh, rural North Carolina, Mayberry, as a matter of fact. Your listeners know most about where I grew up from Andy Griffith's show. Um, I grew up just, uh, you know, just down the road from that fictional place. But I grew up in the uh, 1980s when the moral majority was focusing on communities like mine to try to recruit us as um, uh, permanent members of the Republican Party not based on uh, uh, racism, which had been the you know strategy of so many Southern politicians for so long, but based on our religious values. Um, this was a, a strategy that developed in the late 1970s, and uh, Ronald Reagan certainly embraced it, and Jerry Falwell partnered with him, and uh, they began to build what we now talk about as the religious right. But my people were not extremely political before that. Uh, we were, you know, uh, folks who lived a long way from Washington, D.C., and didn't uh, didn't think a lot about what happened there. But uh, increasingly, uh, millions and then hundreds of billions of dollars were invested in convincing faith communities like ours that to be faithful, we had to be uh, strident Republicans. And I, I believed that as a young person and wanted to do all I could for Jesus. So I was trying to become president of the United States when I went to Washington, D.C. as a young person and worked in Senator Strom Thurmond's office, and up close to that reality of, um, of, of power politics in Washington, D.C., I realized that uh, it was a far cry from what the Sunday school teachers had taught me back home, and I, I began to wrestle with that um, contradiction as a young person. But it's certainly something that's very much in our face today, as you know, evangelicals for Trump are willing to uh, celebrate and you know have rallies in defense of this president, even as he contradicts all the basic values of Scripture. Was there a triggering event for you that made you think, wait a minute, maybe, and I remember, of course, that the first donor to the Christian Coalition was, in fact, the Senate Republican Campaign Committee. That was a political apparatus. It was not God finding the Republican Party. It was the right-wing apparatus trying to use a cloak of faith to cover over a movement of guns, God, and greed. The mm-hmm. Was there a moment for you where you—I I did not just sound very bipartisan then. I recognize that— uh, was there a moment for you that uh, made you wonder about the disconnect between your faith and the political movement you were observing? 
Yeah, in particular, um, it was uh, encountering a homeless person on the street in Washington, D.C. Uh, I ignored the fellow because that's what the culture I was living in taught me that, you know, we talked about this compassionate conservatism and how you only enable people if you help and all this sort of stuff that was part of that culture. But I, I walked past this guy and um, I heard Jesus speak to me in the King James Version that I had memorized, in as much as he did not do it unto the least of these, he did not do it unto me. And I I didn't know what to do at that moment, but I realized that the, that the political world I was living in had made me ignore Jesus and I had to go back and reconsider the scriptures when, when I had that experience and uh, that's what you know was the beginning of the end of my career with the religious right but a great gift of my life was that right then I came back to North Carolina and I met Reverend William Barber who was uh, preaching at a church in Goldsboro at the time he's still pastor there uh, but he began to introduce me to a way of reading the Bible that the black-led freedom movement in the South uh, had passed down to him, and uh, it was a way of recognizing that faith, yes, is political, but it's not about backing you know, a party that promises to defend you. Faith is political because it's about challenging whoever's in power with God's concern for the poor and the marginalized, and that political vision of the gospel is what motivates me to this day. You've written about reckoning with the racist history of American Christianity, and you hit on it very briefly a moment ago, about the gospel being split, about the idea of two sides of Christianity. What do you mean by two sides of Christianity? Well, Frederick Douglass said it like this. He said, between the Christianity of the slaveholder and the Christianity of Christ, I see the widest possible difference. Now, this is a man who had been born, you know, an enslaved person, uh, and his master, the people who claimed to own him, said that it was God's will that they owned him. And he said, you know, I prayed for freedom for 20 years, but God never answered my prayers until I prayed with my feet. <laughs> he ran away. And in that, you know, uh, journey north, he found the AME Church and found a tradition in which uh, Jesus came to bring freedom to those who are captive. And Douglas understood that that gospel was good news for people like him, but he also knew that people had used Christianity to try to, you know, enslave uh, him. And, and that pattern of using Scripture to uh, justify the very worst things that we do is something that preceded slavery in this country. It's you know, certainly been done in other places, and it's something that has continued in that tradition in this country. So I think that, that legacy of a slaveholder religion in this country is very much with us still, and if you go back and pay attention to the arguments that were made about Scripture in the 19th century, you know, over and against the abolitionists, those arguments often sound very much like what folks say today to justify uh, the immorality of the Trump administration. In your previous book, I think it's Reconstructing the Gospel, you describe whiteness as a religion that must be unlearned. Uh, you also yeah. describe how certain practices can help white people unlearn some of that religion. Explain that to the degree I got it wrong or just flesh it out. Well, yeah, I mean, how, how do you unlearn whiteness? Whiteness is a, is a lie about who we are. And I think faith is fundamentally about the God who made us communicating to us who we really are. 
And so one of the reasons that I, I want to help people, you know, unlearn the lie. The lie of whiteness was basically the lie that was told to prop up a system that could use black bodies and steal land from Native people in order to, uh, you know, build what's now the, you know, largest economy in the history of the world. Now, if, if you know, if that's how all of this wealth came to be, then I think we have to go back and question, you know, the kind of basis of it. And at the base of it was this notion that some people are better than other people just because of the color of their skin. Uh, that's a lie that keeps you from receiving the basic message of the Bible, which is that, that God loves every one of us the way we are, but God wants to transform us into uh, a, a, a fuller image of what God made us to be. And so I try to um, help people, you know, unlearn the habits of the habits of of assuming white privilege, of assuming white superiority, of assuming you know that, or assuming that race is natural. You know, there's all sorts of ways in which you know we organize our lives such that we just you know take it as a matter of fact that we're raced into these different groups. When this is a this is a, a way we uh, uh, crafted the world in order to uh, maintain certain economic arrangements. So I think it's something that gets in the way. I mean, it has certainly oppressed African Americans and other people of color um, for the history of this country, but I think it also gets in the way of white people being human. And so while I will struggle for justice with those who've been oppressed, I also want to preach liberation to my uh, sisters and brothers who believe ourselves to be white in order that we might become human. Say say more about how you developed the relationship with Pastor Barber. Did he take you under his wing, or did you ask to, to say more about how that came to be? Well, I didn't even know what I was getting into, but I was I was taken, as uh, almost anyone is when they hear him preach. I was taken by the power of the message he was preaching, and so as a, you know, as a young person who'd grown up in the church, I, I simply asked him, "Would you come preach at my church?" And he said, um, "He said yes." And so we began a relationship. I mean, I was 16 years old when that happened. And um, how did you know, how did been, how did you get permission from your church to have <laughs> him allowed to preach? I happened to, I happened to grow up with the pastor's son. We were buddies. Oh, so, uh, we were both together at this gathering, and we we went home and you know, over breakfast or lunch or whatever we were eating at his house, we said to his dad, hey, we met this great preacher. And, uh, you know, it didn't even occur to me then that the church I grew up in had never had an African-American preacher. Um, but uh, but our, our pastor was willing to invite him, and that then led to a relationship between our churches and, um, and yes, yeah, certainly a long mentoring relationship for me. Um, uh, Reverend Barber has been... Uh, a guide uh, who's helped me to um, understand this long and rich tradition of reading the Bible, uh, reading the Bible with those uh, who have been most oppressed in this country, and, and, and learning that it's good news in those contexts precisely because the Bible was written by and for people who were marginalized and oppressed. And, and he he is such a giant, such a giant, and, and the the idea that one should read the Bible not to support and justify what you already believe, but to discover what its message is, that's a revolutionary idea. 
Well, it is, and it, it and it's 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 the power of the scripture, and uh, frankly, you know, it's the thing that keeps me believing that our God is real, because the the the, the God who has made a way out of no way for you know the people who were enslaved in Egypt all the way through the folks who gathered in the you know four people's movement that Jesus started in in the Galilee and went to Jerusalem and all through history that movement has continued despite the fact that an overwhelming amount of money and power has been used to try to co-opt it to serve you know empires and political parties and other things uh, so that that's the thing that convinces me that it has real power because despite the fact that so much has been invested in uh, trying to distort it and use it for ill, uh, there are still people, and I meet them all the time in the Poor People's Campaign across this country, people who have connected deeply with their faith and know that, that's, that, that the God of their faith is calling them uh, into a revolutionary movement to change the world that is into the world that ought to be. That's, that's the vision at the heart of the revelation, and it's at the heart of um, all the movements that inspire me in the world today. People might be wondering or listening, might be, why are we dwelling on this? Why do I find this personally interesting? Why did Pop want to book this? And I think, folks, democracy is not my faith, but it is my belief. And why do we dwell on religion? Well, to some degree, to a huge degree, Christianity has been the moral underpinning of this country. Uh, When Protestants were pushing for abolition, for women's suffrage, for civil rights, for public schools, the progressive movement a century ago, that stuff won. Uh, when the uh, when uh, southern racist Christians were trying to and and heck dad Mormons were saying that uh, black people were the sons of ham and and not fully human and then when later the not just the prosperity gospel even prior to that and the debates between the post millennialists and the premillennialists were saying no 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 we don't have to focus on works we don't have to do any good in our lives here all we have to do is wait for the second coming and in fact the worse things get here the more likely it is the second coming will arrive well that has been uh, consonant and contemporaneous with the right of right-wing power in the country i think that the uh, for want of a better term the left's unwillingness or or discomfort with discussing issues of morality and 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 including issues of religion come at their not only moral failing moral peril peril excuse me moral risk but also their political failing their political risk so that's a little bit about why i dwell on it what do you what do you hope that you can leave listeners with what do you want to make sure that people grapple with in addition to what you've already said that we might be missing in the faith discussion well what I think most progressive un- understand is that the kind of right wing extreme religion that they see you know, around the court evangelicals who, who, who celebrate Donald Trump today and you know many who were doing similar things before this current president what, what, what people are right about when they see that is that that's incredibly dangerous. I, I think it's the number one threat to democracy in America because it is able to convince people based on their faith to do things that they would never be convinced of based on reason. Um, but the other side is that what you were saying earlier is also true, that there is another faith that has always motivated the movements for 
change and for progress in this country's history. And so what I would hope to say to people is that there is a possibility for a revolution of values that taps into that tradition of Christianity that's not exclusive of other faiths or of people who don't have a particular faith, but that connects deeply with the constitutional commitment to equal justice under the law and to a notion that we would be a democracy for all people. And in the current crisis, I, I, I do believe that many of us need a faith that can sustain us over and against uh, incredible odds. I mean, the, uh, the archetypal story in Scripture is the story of the, the people of God coming out from under the Pharaoh's grip. And Pharaoh had all the power, Pharaoh had the army, but the people trusted that God could make a way out of no way. And I find that we're in a similar position, and leaning into the best of our faith tradition is something that can give us both hope and courage to continue on at a time like this. Something that I want to make sure that you know so you can share with your parishioners, really, is I'm so grateful that you have agreed to this interview this morning. And they should be aware that they can go to xray.fm on their computer. <laughs> That's finishing the interview with the, a plug. And go to the archives and hear this interview anytime they want to. The book is Revolution. Well, of, thank you for sharing it. <laughs> the book is Revolution of Values. The author and our guest has been Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Sir, thank you so much for being with us. Glad to be with you. And Help if by care. any chance you ever come this way, we have beds. <laughs> All right, Portland, Oregon. Bless you all. Take care. All right, take care. You are listening to X-Ray. When we come back, we're going to be talking more about what's happening here in our hometown, in our state. This is X-Ray and radio is yours. And now it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith. It's Monday, January 6th. City Commissioner Nick Fish passed away last week. Fish served on Portland City Council for more than a decade, passed away at home after a two-year battle with abdominal cancer. Fish resigned from the council shortly before his death. He wrote, I am privileged to have had the opportunity to serve the community I love for the past decade. Thank you for allowing me this honor and for all that you do to make Portland special. That future is bright. Rest in power, Nick Fish. Central City Concern has shut down its sobering station. Oregonian and others reporting the sobering center it was publicly funded and served as a place for intoxicated people to sober up. The service was known as Cheers. It had been around since 1985. Central City Concern said they were getting more and more people in mental health crisis along with intoxication from meth, opioids, or both. They said they simply couldn't meet the safety and medical needs of the people being brought in. An anti-war rally brought some number of hundreds of people into downtown Portland on Friday. The No War in Iran rally was organized by Portland's Democratic Socialists of America. They organized in response to Trump's decision to assassinate Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. PSU, Portland State University, has reached a settlement with the family of Jason Washington. Washington was shot and killed by PSU police officers in 2018. Under the agreement, his family will not go forward with a lawsuit against the university, and PSU will pay Washington's family a million dollars, part of which will go to Memorial Scholarship. Portland's new police chief was sworn in on New Year's Eve. Portland Police Captain Jamie Resch sworn in as police chief during a private ceremony just before the new year. Her swearing-in came in just one day after the news broke that outgoing chief Danielle Outlaw would be leaving her post to head Philadelphia's police force. 
and realtors have donated to a Portland Democrat who is facing a challenge from a tenants' rights socialist. The Oregon Association of Realtors typically donates to Republican candidates, but they recently made a $2,500 donation to Portland Democrat Rob Nose facing a challenge from the left. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Dad, where you want to go? You want to talk well, more got, about... Go ahead. I got lots of... When I say state and local, I expand state and local to include... So the whatever region. the heck you want to talk about. Yeah, but Judge Simon, Judge Michael Simon, Federal Judge Michael Simon, is has told the... Department of Interior, the Secretary of Interior Zanke, that Zanke in granting the Hammonds a revival of their grazing permit had ignored regulations and law and has said that for them to get a grazing permit they're going to have to reapply and show that they are eligible, which uh, is strikes me as being absolutely sound. Might be worth mentioning that there were several moderate earthquakes off British Columbia which <laughs> fuels my hope that we'll just keep getting moderate earthquakes so that How the, many do we have? 1, 2? Uh, we were several actually. That's fantastic. Yeah. That if we we have a drop somewhere, it's the good news drop. I, the drops have gone. I I don't know where they are. I I pine for them. I cry for them. But don't cry for the drops, Argentina. But I will say, in the good news department, every time we get a small earthquake, it's good news. We root here for lots of small earthquakes. What's next, Bob? The snowpack and the Cascades on the 1st of December was only 45% of normal. I am hoping that the rain we are getting today is producing snow as low as possible in the Cascades, but because it is so warm. And we have had ridiculously warm weather. It nearly hit 60 last week. It's absurd. That's warm. That's warm. It, it, it's pleasant, but also scary when you recognize its relationship to the warming of the earth. No, I was told, somebody said, I thought it was absurd, and I'm starting to believe it, that the weather patterns in Oregon... Uh, excuse me, particularly in the Willamette Valley, are going to start to resemble, I don't know, by 2040, start to resemble the weather patterns that we are used to now in California. Yes. Yep. The There's been some real criticism of Intel because of pay equity dis disparities. And Intel reached an agreement. They're going to come up with something like $6 million. And there was some criticism about whether or not it was going to be fairly distributed and the CFO, that's the chief financial officer, George Davis, said, well, does it really matter? I, uh, George Davis, you're probably not listening to this show this morning, but if anybody has communication with Mr. Davis, tell him, yeah, it matters a lot. A lot. The, uh, the Northwestern states have led in creating the Western Invasion Species Council, with which they're hoping to get all the Western states involved in, in cooperating to address invasive species because of what invasive species are, are doing. One example of an invasive species, there's an Asian hornet 
that has invaded northern Washington that attacks and kills bees, which is pretty scary. And this reminds me some things that you should be aware if you are a boater, if you have a canoe, if you have a rowboat, if you have a kayak, and you're going to go on Oregon waters, you got to get a permit now. you got to get a license. It costs you 30 bucks every two years. So be aware of that. And while we're talking about laws you need that uh, have gone into effect this week, no more plastic bags in Portland. And if you want a paper bag at a, at a grocery store, it's going to cost you a nickel. So those cloth bags that you've been accumulating in your closet, get them in your car so you remember to take them into the store. New law allows bikes to run stop signs. Of course, they've been running stop signs quite long. Even though they weren't now, allowed to do it. Now it's, now it's legal. Uh, the uh, law allowing you to get your pot conviction expunged, that has taken effect. So if you got convicted of a marijuana, you might want to go get it expunged. That is somewhere to go. And then I think worth mentioning, Oregon Live, the Oregonian Live, has decided to not allow commentary. Online no more anymore. comments. No, no more, more online comments. No more online comments. And I, I, I think that's a good thing. They, they, they still allow letters to the editor, and they allow letters to the editor they publish across the spectrum because every, every time well, the letters yesterday included things that I agreed with, things that I didn't know about, and things that I totally disagreed with. Really good to do that because there is a, a they're, they're going to weed out yeah, a little bit of filter. simply scurrilous. Here's a key fact, and I, by the way, well, I'll, I'll say the key fact first, and then I want to wish a happy birthday. The key fact is that I think there was something like 40 million views, you know, on, on Oregon Live, including, I think it was tens of millions of viewers, okay, on looking at it, but 50% of the comments, I, I don't pull out a fact. Don't hold me to the numbers. I don't have. The, I may not have the numbers exactly right, but the uh, a significant uh, number. But no. But I think it was half. I do think it was half the comments uh, had were done by twenty three hundred people out of the millions of people who had viewed it. Okay, it was almost all dominated by a relatively small number of habitual trolls. Uh, the uh, uh, so I am not. You know, we root for democracy. We want ways for people to participate, uh, but. Figuring out a way to filter that, I would prefer, of course, moderated, uh, moderated forums to no forum at all. Uh, but uh, and if I got a comment from comment in saying that they uh, the comments have been a nice resource for fact checking, it kind of uh, bums uh, bums somebody out, and I hear that. But I would, yeah, I, I am sort of surprised they didn't figure out a way to do moderated forums. But of course, that costs money, and yet again is another example of why we need. Nonprofit media. I, I now listen to a podcast on the state of the media, and they keep lamenting. They said, "You know, listen. You think you're helping your, and I'm not speaking of the Oregonian in this instance, but talking about lots of papers. You think you're helping uh, journalism by, you know, subscribing to blank service, but you don't understand if they're owned by a big oligarchy, uh, the big oligopolist. It's not." You're not getting money to reporters. You're not getting money to better journalism. You're just getting money to the profits, and that was that was according to the press box, which is a ringer, uh, a ringer podcast. But the reminder that it gave to me is why we're so grateful to have this, and hopefully we can grow this. Did want to bring up this one thing. I wanted to say happy birthday to Manuel Galaviz. Uh, Manny has been a strong supporter 
both through himself and also through his wife, uh, Susan, who have been maybe the most stalwart, certainly among the most stalwart supporters of X-Ray and then spawned uh, KXRW in, in Washington State in Vancouver. And there have been times, and I will say, this is this is true, the times that my energy has faltered when I said, oh, you know, I had originally agreed to give a year to the organization to help it get off the ground. I've given obviously a lot more than that. The times I've kept going, very practically, very specifically, in my mind's eye has been the Galavis family. We love you. We appreciate you. And radio is yours. Uh, Dad, the... Uh, we won't have time today, I guess, but uh, about the realtors and the Rob Nose thing, I do want to watch that Rob Nose, Paige Cressman, uh, I didn't say uh, Paige's name, uh, is the uh, DSA candidate running against Rob Nose. Uh, we will talk about that in a little bit uh, in, in our next show about that district. It is a liberal district. It's a district where uh, Nader beat Bush in that district and has a precinct where Nader beat Gore. So it's not, you know, it, it, it's, it's the Kremlin, as a friend, call, friend likes to call it. But, Dad, it's time for your straw in the wind. Wow. Well, I have two straws in the wind. One that I hope is a straw in the wind. And it's just a hope. It may be a forlorn hope. Chris Wallace, who is a commentator and supposedly a news and analyst on Fox, quote, news, close quote, severely criticized DDT for his attacks on the press and said that DDT's attacks on the press were really not good for the country. I hope that's a straw in the wind. And then another straw in the wind for the Boy Scouts of America. They are going to lose 400,000 Mormon boys. The Mormon Church is pulling out of the Boy Scouts of America. That's a serious straw in the wind for BSA. Well, Bob, we did it again. Happy New Year, everybody. Love you, Pop. Love you, too, and we'll be back on Thursday. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Democracy.